Good evening. We are going to be looking at 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 to 19. There is a handout in the back with some easy answers to follow along if you want an easy ability to take notes. I keep emphasizing the easy part for the young ones. And I've already been challenged. It says David's final prayer, and what it should say is David's final recorded prayer. I'm sure King David prayed many more times before he died after this prayer. So uh, we are going to go ahead and read First uh, Chronicles 29:10 to 19. So if you can turn there. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, "Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever." Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness, In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purpose and thoughts in the hearts of your people, and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provisions. So before we study the prayer of David, let's pray ourselves. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to deliver what you've laid on my heart, and I pray that this would be um, communicated clearly, and it would be your message, and that it would correctly um, interpret scripture, and that we could learn much about, about who you are, Lord, and about how Um, The Israelites prayed to you and how we can pray to you in the same way today and how you are the same God. Direct my words for your glory and honor. Amen. So as introduction, uh, this prayer is at the end of David's life. David has reigned as king over Israel for 40 years. He was the second king of Israel and I would say far more successful than his predecessor Saul. Saul was rejected by God in 1 Samuel 13, 14. And Samuel prophesied that God will find a new king over Israel who will be a man after God's own heart. And David was the fulfillment of that prophecy. In 1 Chronicles 17, David is king now. And he is in his great cedar house. And he comes to this conviction while he's there. And the conviction is that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is still in a tent while he abides in this nice house. He wanted the Ark to have a proper abiding place. However, the Lord instructs David, he says, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. Rather, one of your sons shall build a house for me. 
Now, even though David was not permitted by God to build the temple, nothing prevented him from preparing. So in the first nine verses of 1 Chronicles 29, the chapter we're looking at today, David has gathered up numerous materials, including a significant amount of uh, precious metals, to help for the building of the temple. So to the very end of his life, David was making arrangements for Solomon, his son, to build the temple of the Lord. So David's prayer begins just after he has collected this massive free will offering from the Israelites for the purpose of building the temple. Tons of precious metal, very valuable offering that he's gathered up. And that's where the prayer begins. Uh, for the purpose of tonight, I divided the prayer into three sections. Uh, I have praise and thanksgiving, humility, and then the request. And as we go through it, we're also going to learn three lessons that I think we see in David's prayer of giving to the work of the Lord. So the first section I labeled praise and thanksgiving, and that's verses 10 to 13. So verse 10 begins, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father. Of all the surrounding pagan nations around Israel, I'm not sure any could claim that God was also their father, that their God was also their father. Um, and if they did, I'm sure he was not a great fulfillment of that. This is what made the Israelites unique and that God was not just their God, but also their spiritual father. Now, what about God made him a father to Israel? I think the best way to understand that, you have to look at what are the responsibilities of a father. So I laid out a few. The responsibilities of a good father are to protect, to provide, to nurture, to lead, to teach, and to seek after. So that's what a good father is. The next question is, has the Lord done any of these things for Israel that they should call him their father? To protect, God shielded them from the plagues in Egypt. He defeated neighboring tribes, including the Ammonites, Philistines, Moabites, Egyptians, and many others. Provided, he provided quail and manna and, and water in the wilderness to the Israelites. He brought the walls of Jericho tumbling down, and he provided judges and kings. And then to nurture, and I've defined this as encouraging the development of someone. While God led the Israelites, he also allowed for them to learn from their mistakes. They had to suffer many consequences as a result of their foolish decisions. And I think this allowed for a nurturing of the Israelites and a maturing of them. And then to lead, he guided the Israelites through the wilderness with cloud by day and fire by night. God led the Israelites directly and indirectly through judges, kings, and prophets. And then teach. He gave the law of God that Moses presented to the Israelites. He gave the book of Leviticus that laid out the laws of the nation of Israel. And lastly, to seek after. And that paints the picture of a father that continually goes after that wayward son. And God, time and again, brought the Israelites back out of captivity the whole New Old Testament is full of that cycle of prosperity, disobedience, them being carried off, and then God bringing them back. That's, that, that's God seeking after them time and again. No other neighboring God could claim to do this. God was a father in the Old Testament. God was a father in the New Testament. And God is still our father today. He is our spiritual father that will le never leave us or forsake us. Psalms 37, 28. 
Our earthly fathers will at some point disappoint us. Sorry, Dad. And we as fathers will at some point disappoint our children. Sorry, Danny and Simon. But the good news is God never does. For all who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of their sins, God adopts them as his sons and daughters. He protects, provides, nurtures, leads, teaches, draws them back, and he loves us as his own. Just like David, at the beginning of his prayer, addressed God as his father, we also can address God today as our father. And the next three words after, in verse 10, after he says our father, he says, our father forever and ever. God was not just Israel's fathers for those five, for those few years, sorry, and he is not just our father for us in 2023. No, God is eternally our father, past, present, and future. Also, it's important to note, we as humans did not make God a father. God has always existed as a father in the triune relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has been a father for all times. Then the beginning part of verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty Greatness of anything good belongs to the Lord. As we saw before with the characteristics of a good father, the Lord is not just a good demonstration of a father, but rather God is the greatest demonstration of a good father. The greatness of power, the greatness of provision, the greatness of protection, the greatness of love, the greatness of leading, the greatness of teaching all belong to the Lord. He is the greatness. All other powers in this world fall before or below God's power. And God is also the greatest example of a father pursuing after his own. God sought us after, God sought after us while we were still enemies. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So all these descriptions that David prays to God are interconnected with each other. God cannot possess the greatness of power or the greatest power if he also did not possess the greatest victory. God cannot possess the greatest majesty if he also did not possess the greatest glory. And the next part of verse 11, it says, All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Now I have a a question, I want you guys to raise your hands. I want you to raise your hands if you've ever fought with somebody over an object, such as a toy, tool, food. Come on, let's see some hands. Simon, Danny, hands up. There you go, Simon, good job. All right, so we've, we've established that we've all fought with somebody. Now I want you to keep your hands raised if during that fight you've used the word, it's mine. Yeah, you better keep your hands up, Simon and Danny. All right. Now, the good news is, you can put your hands down, that King David, thousands of years ago, in this prayer, he solved that argument. No need to fight over whose it is. Because that toy or that food or that tool or any other object that you're fighting over, it's not yours. It's God's. Everything in the earth is God's. When we consider ownership, if I'm going to rightfully own something, I'm going to have to possess the raw ingredients I'm going to have to own the design. 
And I'm going to have to maintain the, maintain, have the power to maintain that possession because I can make something and if somebody steals it from me, I don't have a possession of it anymore. So using those three defining characteristics of ownership, let's look at God. Well, he is the creator of all natural resources. He created everything. Colossians 1.16. He's the creator of the human mind. So all credit for human design and invention goes to him. And then we're talking about power. He holds all power to take, to keep, to possess whatever his heart desires. Colossians 1.17. God is the rightful owner of all things in heaven and earth. All that we have is the Lord's. Now, we can say that, but the challenge is accepting that truth in our minds and in our hearts and living our daily lives under that truth. And that's why we see us yelling the words, it's mine. And I think for us in the U.S., for us right here, ownership, it's real important. But I imagine that if we were being persecuted, if we were persecuted Christians, we'd find this verse very encouraging because when they would take our land or possessions or lives, when the government would take possession of these, the pain of losing that possession would be lessened when we consider that it never truly belonged to anyone but God. And that's why King David is praying that, because he has experienced the same loss on multiple occasions. At one point in his life, he was, flee he was fleeing from Saul with nothing. He had no possessions at all. He was trying to escape with his life. And now, fast forward... He's this extremely wealthy king. And David recognized that all that he has acquired since being that poor shepherd boy is the Lord's. And then verse 12, both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So David just recognized that God had ownership over everything. If God is the owner of all things, both riches and honors would have to flow from him. Furthermore, as already established, for God to own all things, he would need to be all-powerful. David recognizes that God rules over all things, and in God's hands are power and might. God is the one who makes great and gives strength. So after decades of being a very victorious and wealthy king, David humbly recognizes that all this power might, wealth, and honor has flowed directly from God. These were never David's by right, but God's. Many kings throughout history, including, I think, both Saul and Solomon, lost sight of this reality during their years of prosperity. They forgot that their success is ultimately from God. And how often do we also lose sight? What life blessings have we not humbly acknowledged are from God? Pride easily creeps into our lives, and we either forget or we suppress the truth. We fail to give God praise for the blessings he has so abundantly given us. And that brings us to the first lesson we see in giving to the Lord's work. And that is understanding that everything comes from God. And then verse 13, the final verse of this section. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. David sums up the earlier verses with thanksgiving and praise to God. Very few kings reach the end of their lives and continue to give God all praise and thanksgiving for their life's work. It is imperative in all of our life's journey that we continually remind ourselves that all things come from God and he deserves all praise and thanksgiving for it. 
So the next section is verses 14 through 16. I titled it, Humility Before a Glorious God. Verse 14 reads, But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. I think the focus of David's question here is the phrase, offer willingly. God holds ownership to all things. He makes one great. He makes one strong. So what gives David and the Israelites the right to offer willingly? Well, who is David? He's the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, responsible for keeping the sheep. Now, typically, the youngest son and shepherds were not considered potential king material. Sorry to all the youngest sons and shepherds out there. But the difference about David is God chose him. David recognizes that nothing in himself earned him the right to be standing here now. Nothing intrinsic to David earned him the right to offer freely and abundantly to God. The Israelites, when we look at who the Israelites were, were a few hundred years ago nomads wandering in the wilderness with no land, no military power, no riches, and being fed every day directly from God a meal of manna and quail. The Israelites would be an insignificant, unimportant people, and probably even extinct, is my speculation, if it were not for God. Nothing in the Israelites gave them a right to be able to offer so freely. Since all things are from God, David is recognizing in his prayer that the offering being taken up for the temple is simply the people giving God the riches that belong to him. David seems awestruck that the omnipotent God would even make a world in which people can offer willingly. I think we see God's love in David's humble question. God does not need this offering, but he chooses to allow the Israelites to give to him freely and willingly the very possessions that are the Lord's. And that brings us to the second lesson, the lesson that we see in giving to the Lord's work, and that's recognizing the immense privilege it is to give to the Lord. It's a huge privilege to be able to offer to the Lord. And then continuing on in that section, verse 15. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. So God allows for us to freely give to him despite our very lives being tiny and insignificant in the grand scheme of time. David says his days on the earth are like a shadow. The greatest king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the man whose lineage would birth the Messiah, compared his own life on earth as to a shadow. That begs the question, what does that make our lives look like? Shadow of a little twig. Even David's life, for all its greatness, was simply a shadow in that it was here for a moment and then gone. The shadow a tree makes is there for a moment and then gone once the sun has moved directions. David's prayer here reminds us of the brevity of life. The New King James Version reads, We are aliens and pilgrims before you. And another translation is temporary resident. We, like the Israelites and David, have insignificant lives on earth. And like Israel, God's people today are still nomads on earth because we await a far greater place to call home. A Christian's joy and hope rests in the future home in heaven awaiting. We should also view ourselves as temporary residents, pilgrims, aliens, and strangers on earth. Two passages that help remind us of this I'm going to read. Hebrews 11:13 through 16. 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having the knowledge that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then 1 Peter 1, 3-5, through 5, I'll, I'll paraphrase. It says, We have been brought to life from the dead through the resurrection of Christ and given to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 16 reads, verse 16, continuing in David's prayer. He says, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house, for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. David is reiterating what he just prayed, but more specifically, he's focusing on the matter at hand. The great giving of the people to build the house of the Lord was all possessions that God had given them and belonged to God. David has toppled over any element of pride that he or the Israelites might have tried to hold on to in their giving for the temple building. Dare we ever stand before God and try to brag about how we gave our money, time, or resources to him or for him? No one was about to leave this gathering of Israelites thinking that they had made God wealthy or prosperous. That their giving was providing God a house. No, this moment of giving for the temple to be built was God mercifully allowing the people. God, God did not need their wealth. Also, as we already established, God has the power to take whatever his heart desires. But in God's mercy, he allowed for the people to give. And he allowed later for the people to build a house for himself. God never needed any of this. Psalms 50, 10-13 For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So also today, God does not need our money, our time, or resources. But he does allow for us to give to him and he will hold us accountable for how we use the blessings he has given us. And we won't read this tonight, but the parable of talents that Jesus teaches on in Matthew 25, 14-30 is a great uh, summation of that. So now we're going to get to the last group of scripture that I've labeled the request. This is 17-19. to 19. So when we come to 17, David transitions his tone to begin the request of his prayer. The beginning verses in David's prayer are essential in making sure his heart is right before the Lord. David expresses thanksgiving, praise, and brokenness, and humility. I think often in, our, in my own prayer, I just want to get quickly to the request of a prayer, as if that's the most important part of any prayer, but I assure you that is not. Praising God for who he is, thanking God for his blessings, and recognizing our weakness and sinfulness before a holy God puts our hearts minds and motives into a right place before we dare to ask anything of the Holy God. And I've also been convicted as a father with my own children that what kind of image I portray when all I pray to God is request after request. God is not some genie in a lamp, some magical being that just grants request. This is the maker of heaven and earth. We have no right in ourselves to enter God's presence apart from Christ. As David just prayed, who am I and what is my people? 
So we, may we never view our prayers of praise, thanksgiving, and confessing as less important or unnecessary. And some scripture that helps reinforce that, Romans 1.21, for, all the, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then both uh, Ephesians 5.20 and 1 Thessalonians 5.18 command us to give thanks always and in all circumstances. And then when we're talking about confessing, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now let's look at verse 17. The first part reads, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. and the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. David introduces an important element in our giving. We are to give freely of the blessings God has given us, but giving freely is not enough. We can give freely all we have to the very last penny, but if our heart is not right, then our giving is not pleasing to God. So what kind of heart does God desire in our giving? And David mentions two things. The first is uprightness of heart, and that's looking at the motive in our giving. What is our motive? Are we harboring some secret unrepentant sin and maybe using our giving as a means to cover it up? which does not work. Are we giving to in one area but refusing to give in another area? Maybe that an area that God is asking for us to give in? Is our giving for the purpose of man's praise? That's an easy trap to fall into. Is our giving being viewed as a means of salvation or reconciliation with God? Which, by the way, if that is the case, we just need to remember David's earlier prayer, how all things belong to God, so we're, trying, so we're trying to reconcile ourselves with God by giving him his own possessions. That makes no logical sense. And yet, we t- tend to always try to do this in our minds. So uprightness of heart, and the other thing that David mentions is joy. If, in our giving, we must have joy. 1 Corinthians 9, 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And little side note I'll make. Um, I asked the elder Brad if that was the verse that they used to justify or to um, put our offering in the back instead of passing it so you're not giving out of compulsion. Uh, We both agreed that makes logical sense, not verse works, but at the time they just felt convicted and didn't have a verse for it. But I thought that made a lot of sense as far as putting the offering in the back. You're not giving out of compulsion or to make uh, yourself look good in front of others. So um, a third aspect that I'll add to giving is, um, so along with uprightness of heart and joy, is uh, that's closely related is charity or love. When we give, we must show charity or love. 1 Corinthians 13, 3, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. And the question here is, who has grudgingly served someone, or who has grumbled as they handed over money, time, or resources, or like, man, this person's really needy. I'm always having to give to them. I'm tired of giving to them. And I've been there. And that does not honor God. That is not godly giving. As David is praying to God, he says, in the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all things. Now, this might sound a little brazen of David to make this statement. But I think David is first recognizing that God desires an upright heart, when we give. And second, David is saying that he has tested his heart and believes that he is giving in uprightness. 
David is laying his heart before God and the Israelites, declaring that he has found no wrong motive in his giving to God. He is making this claim so that either God, through the Holy Spirit, or the Israelites can point out where he is wrong, can show him how his heart is not upright in its giving. This declaration, declaration by David is not of one of pride, but of openness before God, allowing for the Holy Spirit to convict him of any wrong motives in his giving. And that brings us to the third and final lesson in giving to the Lord's work. Our giving must be from a willing heart with right motives. Matthew six twenty one, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So now let's continue on in uh, verse 17. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. Now David cannot see the people's heart. He can't see the Israelites' heart. But he's suggesting to God in his prayer that outwardly the Israelites seem to be given freely and joyously. What David has witnessed appears to be the Israelites giving without reserve and an uprightness of heart. And David makes a request based off that in the following verse. It reads, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our Father, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel are the three forefathers of Israel. From these three men came the entire nation of Israel. What did these three men have in common besides being related? They all three served the Lord. And now, hundreds of years later, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel are gathered praying to the same Lord. This is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. God is still here leading the Israelites despite countless acts of rebellion and disobedience. Even the very presence of a king over Israel was an act of rejection of God. The Israelites rejected God being their king and wanted a man as king. But despite all this, the Lord has still, is still here leading the Israelites. And David is praying to this faithful and loving God. David asked that the same purpose and thoughts the Israelites have demonstrated here would be forever present in their lives. He wants the Israelites to always have the same purpose and thoughts. Secondly, he asked that God would direct their hearts to himself. This is such a beautiful request. David is asking that the same heart of love and generosity would always be present and God would continue to direct their hearts. He's asking that God would help each new generation of Israelites be drawn to him. And then verse 19, he prays for his son. He says, grant to Solomon my son, a whole heart. David has searched his heart before God. He has humbled himself before God, and he has made God big and himself small. And now he has an earnest plea. Give my son a whole heart. You see a father at the end of his life pleading for his son. David's days of influencing, training, teaching, instructing, directing, protecting his son Solomon are over. There is nothing left that he can do for his son. His son is king, and David is about to die. David has sat on the throne and experienced the temptations of any man with the given extreme power. And he has failed many times. He committed adultery, pride, murder, covetousness, and much more. He knows the temptations, 
And as any father, he wants his son to be more victorious than he was. He wants his son to make the same, not make the same mistakes he made. He asks God to give his son a whole heart. He does not ask for wealth, riches, honor, prosperity, ease of life. No, he wants his son to have a whole heart, a complete heart. And why does he want this for his son Solomon? Continuing on, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all. David wants his son Solomon to follow the Lord, to be better at obeying the Lord than he was, to not fall prey to the temptations that David experienced. He wants Solomon to have a whole heart so that he can pursue God completely and entirely. We can learn much from this. We as parents should pray the same thing for our sons and our daughters. This should be a cry of every father for their child. And the last part of verse 19 is one more petition. And that he, Solomon, may build the palace for which I, David, have made provision. Finally, David ends with one final petition to God for his son. This whole gathering of the people was to make an offering for the construction of the temple. The first verse of First uh, Chronicles 29 read, And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son, whom God alone has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So now David ends his prayer asking God to grant Solomon success in building the palace of the Lord God. David's heart desire was to build a house of the Lord, but God did not want David to do that. God gave the charge to David's son instead. So David asked that God would grant Solomon success. David has had this long-term vision for the house of the Lord, and this vision extended beyond his own life. This vision was admirable, honorable, upright, and godly. And David prays that his vision would be fulfilled by his very own son. So that concludes David's prayer. And from David's prayer, we learn much about giving to the Lord. We learn in our giving, everything we possess comes from God, making our giving to the Lord an immense privilege and one that requires a willing heart with right motives. David spends the majority of his prayer thanking and praising God and humbling himself before this glorious God. And in the final three verses of his prayer, David pleads for the Israelites, for his son, and for the great work of building the temple. And I think if you're going to take away anything, I think we can learn much by modeling our prayers for our children after David's prayer for his son Solomon. So let's end in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, King David's prayer here, and we thank you that you were a loving, kind father to him and to Israelites, and that you are still today, Lord. We thank you that through the work of Christ on the cross that we can be adopted as sons and daughters. And I pray for anyone here tonight that has not repented of their sins and turned to you, that you would convict them, that they would see the love of God through what was spoken tonight and the steadfastness of, of that love and that they would cry out to you. And may we um, have the same desire in our heart for our children and for the next generation, that they would have a whole heart that would love the Lord and that would obey your commandments, Lord. And I pray that we would be faithful um, with the next generation, with our children, um, to, 
to teach them in the ways of the Lord so that they can continue um, following and pursuing you. And we thank you for the blessing it is to come and study your word together and to call you our Abba Father. In your name, amen.